Well, we're in Matthew chapter 16 again today. Many a good story at some point contains a twist in the plot. Something you didn't see coming. Something maybe even confusing. Seemingly not right. And then that thing raises tension and calls for resolve. But once we've read such a story or watched such a movie, and we've come to that resolve, we find ourselves in a new setting, it's, it's only then that the, the twist, the tension that was somewhere in the middle, it, it finally makes sense. In fact, with a good story, we might even say, well, now it's obvious the story had to go just like that. I can't imagine it any other way. Well, we've been studying Matthew's account of the life and ministry of Jesus, and this week we come to the last eight verses of chapter 16, and here is the twist. Here is the moment of tension. Now, for those of us who are familiar with the whole of the Jesus story, then there's no surprise for us. The suspense has been solved, we could say. But for those in the story, for example, the disciples, the apostles, this indeed was that moment of surprise, tension, suspense. This is a turning point. Remember, as we've talked about in the last couple of weeks, we've talked about Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. That's verse 16 of our chapter. That marked a high point in the first half of the story. Jesus indeed is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the solution, the fulfillment. And it was upon that confession that Jesus gave a charter to his church. We saw that last week, verses 18 and 19. Well, now this week, Jesus will provide a clarification for Peter and the boys, a clarification as to the kind of Christ that he is. And this is the twist. This is what they didn't see coming. This is what seems unthinkable and impossible until they get it. And then it couldn't be any other way. Look down in Matthew 16, if you have your Bibles open or on the screens as I read, starting in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross 
and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, this is the first of four times in the rest of Matthew that Jesus will predict his impending death and resurrection. The other ones are in chapters 17 and 20 and 26, if you want to go looking for those later. But, but that's why Matthew introduces things as he does in verse 21 of chapter 16. It's from that time that Jesus began to show the disciples that he would die and be raised. Jesus' prediction of his coming execution in verse 21 exposes Peter's confusion about what kind of Messiah one should be expecting. And after Jesus confronts Peter's confusion, Jesus then explains in verses 24 to 28 that for any who would follow a crucified Christ, they can expect a similar pattern for themselves as the one that they follow. They can expect this pattern, suffering, then glory, difficulties, then deliverance, sacrifice, then exaltation. Our passage raises some questions which are still relevant for us today. Like what kind of Savior do we think we need? What kind of Savior do we think we need? And another question it raises is, what kind of religion, what kind of faith, what kind of Christian life should we expect? Here's the first of these sections. We could call it the necessity of a crucified Christ. The necessity. Notice that little but oh so important word in verse 21, the word must. Jesus must go to Jerusalem and be rejected and die and then be raised. He must. This was the plan of God. Jesus came to do his Father's will. The plan of redemption was set out before the foundation of the world. And it was set out specifically. Notice the specificity of Jesus' prediction. He says he must go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He must go to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was the epicenter. J Jerusalem was the city of God. Jerusalem was the place of sacrifice where Jesus would become the perfect, ultimate sacrifice. He must go to Jerusalem as well because there will be there a confrontation with the religious elites 
He must go to Jerusalem to be rejected as a sign of Israel's unbelief. Jesus could put it like this in Luke 13. I must be on my way to Jerusalem because a prophet cannot be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Oh, you who love to kill the prophets and stone those who were sent to you. Jesus must go to Jerusalem. And there Jesus must, look what it says, suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes. Three categories of religious leaders in these days, which made up the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling body. But even though they were all part of the Sanhedrin, these were groups that didn't get along. These were groups that were, that were always bickering and maneuvering against one another and had different emphases in theology. But on this, these three disparate groups will agree and unite the death of Jesus, the execution of Jesus. So Jesus foretold in our passage the Son of Man must be killed. He must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the religious leaders, and be killed. He must be killed because this was the plan all along. He must be killed because this is what was foretold in the Old Testament prophets. Probably most famously in Isaiah 53, which spoke of a suffering servant who would come. And he'd be rejected and despised, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. After the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus can say to the two men who were walking on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, he can say to them, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer and then enter his glory? Or Peter, our Peter, later on, he can look back on all this and say in 1 Peter 1 that the Old Testament prophets predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. He must die because the Old Testament foretold it. He must die as a payment for sin. That was in Isaiah 53 as well. That he would be pierced for our transgressions. He'd be crushed for our iniquities. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isn't this what Jesus meant when later on in chapter 20, verse 28, he says that he came not to be served, but to serve. Serve just like this, all this way, to, to go all the way to the cross, to be a ransom for many. The Son of Man came to give His life as a ransom, a payment for sin. He came to die in our place. Yes, Psalm 49, which was read for us earlier, says, No man can ransom another man. But that psalm goes on to say in verse 15, God will ransom me. God will ransom me. And that's what Jesus, the God-man, did on that cross. And he didn't stay there. 
and he knew he wouldn't stay there. So he predicted in our passage that he must be raised on the third day. He had to be raised because he's eternal, because he's the living one, because he had to conquer sin and death. So he went through death and came out the other side. And again, the Old Testament foretold of this as well, right? As Jesus said in Luke 24, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, then enter glory. And as Peter said in 1 Peter 1, the Old Testament Old Testament prophets predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that follow. Now, by the way, no mere man could orchestrate the events that Jesus predicted here in Matthew 16. A single person might orchestrate their own death only through their own means, in other words, suicide. But that's not what happened to Jesus. He died at the hands of others. Specific people mentioned here in Jerusalem. Jesus' prediction of his own death was specific as to the where, the who, and the how. He knew what was to come. It was the plan of God. As the early church prayed in Acts chapter 4, after they experienced persecution for being Christians, they said, Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, did whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. It was the plan of God. It must happen. So that's what's coming. That's what for us is already behind us. This is what we already know. But, but Peter, back in Matthew 16, doesn't know some stuff yet. He doesn't think like we do yet. And again, Matthew 16 is that moment of surprise, the plot twist, the, the point of tension. And so Peter thinks that Jesus must be mistaken or pessimistic. A Debbie Downer having a bad day with all this talk of rejection and defeat. Surely the Christ won't die. And so Peter thinks that Jesus needs a stern talking to, to, you know, talk him out of this stinking thinking. <laughs> Verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And he words it very strongly in the Greek. It's literally, God forbid this happen. No way this shall happen. Not on my watch, Lord. Over my dead body will they get to you, Jesus. D.A. Carson puts it like this. Peter's strong will and warm heart linked to his ignorance produce a shocking bit of arrogance. He confesses that Jesus is the Messiah and then speaks in a way that implies he knows more of God's will than the Messiah himself. But like many in his day, Peter had been expecting a different kind of Messiah than this, not one that suffers and dies, 
And it is somewhat understandable when there are parts of the Old Testament that spoke of this mighty warrior king who would come and rule and, and, and subdue evil. Like Psalm 72, which speaks of this one to come and says, may he defend the cause of the poor and crush the oppressor. May they fear him while the sun endures throughout all generations. May he have dominion from sea to sea. And may desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. Oof. On top of that, other ancient texts, texts not in the Bible, like the Psalms of Solomon written uh, a century or two, B.C., before Jesus came, they even elevate the fervor for this kind of warrior king to come who will wipe out all the enemies. Listen to this from Psalms of Solomon. It says, See, Lord, raise up the king, the son of David, to rule over your servant Israel. Undergird that king with strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers, to purge Jerusalem from Gentiles, to smash sinners like a potter's jar, to shatter all their substance with a rod of iron. Well, this was the air that Peter was breathing. What we know now is that Messiah would have two separate comings, a first coming and a second coming. The first coming would be mostly reflected in passages like Isaiah 53. And then Psalm 72, at least in its fullest version, fullest realization, that only comes in Jesus' second coming. You've probably heard before, it's like mountain ranges that appear to be one wall of mountain, a sheet of mountain, at least from far away. But when you get perspective, you find out that there are ridges to this thing. There are layers here. And so Peter couldn't see any differences, any separation between certain prophecies of the one who would come. But now that the first one has come, we can see that there is a, a second to come. Jesus rebukes Peter. In response to Peter's rebuke of Jesus. Notice verse 23. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. It was just 20 seconds ago that Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ. And Jesus said he was blessed. And that this was a heavenly revelation given to him. It was just... It was less than 20 seconds ago that Jesus said, upon that confession, upon you, Peter, I will begin to build my church. And, and now, Peter's opposition to Jesus is said to be satanic. Why? Well, Jesus knows that the same thinking, the same tactic, was used by Satan in the temptations back in Matthew chapter 4. 
Satan's temptations of Jesus were all about this. Shortcuts to glory. End suffering now. Get what's yours. If you are the son of God and you're hungry, make bread now. If you will just bow down to me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth. It's easy. It's quick. Those were alternatives to the mission, to the plan, alternatives to the cross. It was about glory without suffering. And that's what Peter's doing. And that's why it is satanic. And that's why Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Get, get out of my way. You are blocking my way to the cross with these words. That kind of thinking, Peter, is not set on the thoughts of God. This comes from the thoughts of men. This is thinking like the world. This is only seeing temporary things, immediate things, physical things. It's thinking in the here and now and not with the eyes of faith. And that kind of cross-averting perspective, it's alive and well still today. It's not just Satan, not just Peter. It's really every one of us. It's anyone and every one of us apart from God's grace. As Paul puts it so poignantly in 1 Corinthians 1, Christ crucified, that message, is a stumbling block for Jewish people, and it is foolishness for non-Jewish people. Jews would stumble over a crucified king because it's said in the Old Testament, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Cursed. You're under a curse. And then Paul would later quote that very bit of the Old Testament to point out, yes, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And Christ became a curse for us. He came to bear our curse. That's what you've got to begin to see. You've got to turn toward the cross to see that it's not something to stumble over, trip over, but something to embrace. The cross would be a foolish idea for non-Jews like Greeks and Romans because it sure doesn't look powerful. It doesn't look like Victory, it looks like defeat. It looks like embarrassment. There's ancient graffiti, uh, probably from around 100 AD, that mocks Christians worshiping a crucified Christ. You can Google it. As far as I know, it's the oldest piece of graffiti that's ever been found by archaeologists. It depicts a man on a cross with the head of a donkey. And below him is a man gazing up, and the inscription below that is, Aleximenos worships his God. In other words, Aleximenos is a fool. He worships a God 
who's like a crucified donkey. But Alexamenos, whoever he was, he was no fool. Like every Christian after him, he came to see that the cross is not folly, but the power of God and the salvation. To those who are called, 1 Corinthians 1 goes on to say, Christ and Him crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So what kind of Savior do you think you need? What kind of Savior do you think you need? Do you think that your salvation could be achieved with something cooler than the cross? Something neater, tidier, prettier than the cross? Do you think that your salvation or mine could be accomplished with something, with, with anything easier than the cross? Now, this is what it took to save us. This is what it took. Are you starting to see it? Are you starting to turn toward the cross and not be repulsed by it? I pray you would. If you have any questions about that today and you want to talk to someone, I'll be up front after the service and other pastors will be as well. We're here for you to talk about that more and wrestle through that with you. And if you've already come to believe it, before we move on to this next section, Christian, brother and sister, don't get used to this reality, this oh-so-familiar thing of Jesus dying for our sins. Don't get used to it. Don't get used to a Savior who so willingly went to the cross for you. Don't be shy about that message. I don't know about you, but I have found it easier over the years to talk about Jesus' compassion, His care for the poor, Jesus' teaching like the Sermon on the Mount where He lays out some fresh morality, loving others, turning the other cheek. It's harder to talk about Jesus being crucified, the Son of God stripped naked shamed, dying, not only that, but bearing sin and guilt and the Father's wrath for us. Don't be shy about that. And let's not ever begin to not take God at his word. Isn't that really what's at root here with Peter? He didn't take God at his word. He didn't take what Jesus said at face value. He thought he knew better than Jesus. When we come to hard parts in the Bible, let's not entertain the possibility that it's wrong and we're right, or that it's wrong and society nowadays has finally come along. No. And don't forget that we follow, we follow a crucified Christ. And so now we move on to the second part, and we'll deal with this more briefly. We can call it the necessity of following a crucified Christ. 
We follow a crucified Christ. Verse 24, it's then that Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now let me clarify something up front. On the one hand, coming to Jesus for salvation and for the forgiveness of sins in reconciliation with the God that we've offended. Coming to Jesus. Becoming a Christian. You get what I'm talking about here? Coming to Christ will cost you nothing. It's completely free. In fact, you can't presume to bring anything to the table except your sin. No, we come freely or we don't come at all. We simply believe. We simply trust. We simply put our trust in what Jesus alone did for us and what we could never do. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, following Christ, this is the Christian life. This is living the gospel out. Following Christ may cost you everything. It will certainly cost you something. It may not cost you everything. It'll certainly cost you some things. And we will not have the first part without the second part. The second part, discipleship, following Jesus, suffering with Jesus, for Jesus, that's not like optional extra credit for those who really want to do more. No, it's, it's basic Christianity. If anyone would, come after me. To become a Christian means that you receive grace, yes. But let's not forget that grace that we receive so freely also transforms. It changes. It changes the way we live. changes the way we think. It changes our priorities in this life. And so if you're not yet a Christian, hear this. Hear the free welcome to come to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins without money, without cost. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And hear that following Jesus will at times be hard and painful. It'll cost you something. There's no way around it. And you shouldn't jump into this part without knowing about this part. Consider the cost. So, so hear it again. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The cross would not have been a foreign image to anyone living in the first century Roman world. And it would not have been the quaint, prettified image that we often have in maybe necklaces with a cross hanging from our neck or crosses uh, high up on church steeples. No, the cross in the first century Roman world that meant execution. It was Rome's perfected instrument of cruel crucifixion. It meant shame. It meant a prolonged death. It meant a warning to any 
other would-be troublemakers of what they would face if Rome got a hold of them. And so when Jesus says to his disciples, take up your cross and follow me, he was saying, take up the instrument of your execution and march it to where you will die. It's very graphic. It's jarring. And for some followers of Christ over the years, it has meant something very close to being literal. Many Christians have died for what they have said and believed. Peter was crucified in Rome, according to church history. The other apostles, except only one, they all died a martyr's death for Jesus. And the one that didn't was John. He died in old age because he was exiled to an island in punishment for his faith. Some would literally die. Some this week in this world will die for Christ. A machete will be put to the back of their neck and someone will say, deny him or die. And they will say, no, my Redeemer lives and their head will fall from their body. Now, for some followers of Christ, of course, no, they, they don't die. I, I probably, I probably, you probably won't die for Christ. And so this picture, this imagery of taking up your cross is at the very least a metaphor. A metaphor for dying to one's self. We die to self. What does that mean? It, it means this. Following Christ means that we pursue Christ over our pleasures, our comforts, our safety, and if necessary, even our very lives. We pursue Christ over our wants, our desires, our pleasures, our comforts, our safety, and if necessary, even our very lives. Dying to self is as simple as showing love to your spouse when you don't really feel like it. It's sacrificing your desires for their desires. It's deferring. Dying to self is being willing to not take a job in another state which even pays more than your current one because you've done some research and found that there's no good church in that city and the Lord is using you in a new special way at your current church. So damn the extra money, we're staying put. And I love hearing stories from people in our church who've done just that. Dying to self is is giving sacrificially and routinely to a local church. There are people in our church that could be leasing an extra Ferrari if they wanted. Instead, they give that same amount to a church. There are people in our church who, who could have a, a second beach home, but they don't 
The same amount is given to this church. It's crazy. The world would say, you're insane. Dying to self is, is simply not seeking revenge when we've been wronged, not, not bearing a grudge, but instead forgiving. Dying to self is not exalting self, not promoting self, not being resentful when we're overlooked or when we don't get the proper credit. Dying to self means obeying Jesus' commands even when what he forbids sounds pretty good right now. And we kind of feel like we, could, we deserve it a little bit because life's been hard right now. And besides, it's not that bad. Others do it as well. When we say no to that, that's dying to self. I, I could go on for a long time. I encourage you to brainstorm with others of other ways we could be dying to self, maybe in your community group or around uh, the kitchen table later today. But notice that Jesus also gives reasons to embrace this call to deny self and take up our cross and follow him. Notice the four language, F-O-R, verse 25, 26, and 27. There Jesus lays out reasons. He's so kind to give us reasons, not just the command, not just the call, but rationale and even reward. He says, essentially, consider what true life really is. This is verse 25. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Here Jesus is using that word life two different ways. For the temporary physical life and then also the eternal spiritual life of the soul. And so he's essentially saying, for you to save your physical temporary life means that you will lose out on your soul, your eternal life. But to sacrifice temporary physical life in little bits and pieces, dying to self, that well, it, you'll gain eternal life. You'll gain eternal life. That's the first reason. Consider what true life really is. Then consider the worth of stuff versus the worth of your soul. Verse 26. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? If you could somehow so win at the game of life that you had everything. A zero-sum game. No one else had anything. You had everything. But you die without Christ. You die with what? Nothing. Nothing. What in this world do we take with us into eternal life? Nothing but an eternal soul that will either die eternally or live with Jesus forever. A third reason, consider what we gain when Christ comes again. 
Verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he'll repay each person according to what they've done. Repayment for what they have done. That might sound like we earn our salvation. It might sound like the image of the scales, the the balances, and if there's enough good, then you're in. If not enough, then you're out. But that's not what this is talking about. It means that the way we live on the whole of our lives will either validate or invalidate whether we're really with Christ. It means that there's a heavenly reward awaiting us for any sacrifice that we might, sh- might have in this life. As Paul puts it in Romans 8, the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed to us. Consider, lastly, the foretastes of his glory. That's in verse 28. Foretastes of his glory. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now that sounds like second coming language, right? You see that word coming, Son of Man coming. Yeah, but but then there's also the, the promise that some standing there hearing those words for the first time wouldn't die until they see the Son of Man coming. So that can't be the second coming unless Jesus was wrong. But I think instead it's referring to a couple of different glimpses of glory and kingdom that Jesus will show these specific men before they die. In other words, there's the second coming glory and kingdom that will be revealed finally and fully to all. That's the best. That's what we're really waiting for. And yet Jesus says, men, I'll give you some glimpses of glory and kingdom to let you know that that big one's coming in the end. Just look down in your Bibles what happens next after Matthew 16, someone say that T word out loud. It's the transfiguration. There's that glimpse of glory. There's what the Son of Man coming in his kingdom looks like. And maybe also the resurrection appearances. That could also be the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. But these are glimpses of glory, of the glory that awaits us when Christ comes in his fullness at his return. How kind our Savior is to give glimpses of glory, to give reasons, reasons why we can deny self, take up our cross, and follow him even at great cost. So Christian, let it go. That sin you're holding on to, let it go. In light of a crucified Christ, let it go. In light of these reasons to let it go, let it go. 
in light of his coming again, in light of the transfiguration and the resurrection, these glimpses of glory, let it go. Let go of your ego. Let go of your worldliness. Let go of your self-protection and self-prioritization. Let it go. Come to the crucified Christ again, the one who died for us and was raised on the third day and now lives forevermore, let us follow him and follow hard after him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the cross, for the resurrection, for all that you've done, for all that you are for us. Help us to see you aright and put our hope in you again. Help us, Lord, to live in light of this crucified Christ. Give us conviction to do so, boldness to do so. Give us more of your spirit that we might live more like you. We pray in your name. Amen.